This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's no secret Coloradans love the outdoors. And it turns out the outdoor recreation industry is becoming a big economic and political driver. New government figures show the multi-billion dollar industry contributes 2% of the country's gross domestic product. This comes on the heels of the Outdoor Retailer Trade Show. It's the first time the country's largest outdoor and winter sports trade show took place in Colorado. Luis Benitez had a significant role in shaping this experience. He also directs the Colorado Outdoor Recreation Industry Office. Luis, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Nathan, thank you for having me. We'll talk about the Outdoor Retailer Show in a minute, but first, these new numbers from the Department of Commerce are really kind of a milestone. It's the first time we see the true economic effect of the outdoor recreation industry. And we're talking everything from hunting and camping to hiking and fishing. How surprised were you to find that this industry contributes 2% of the nation's GDP? You know, for those of us that are on the inside, none of us were really surprised at all. Because the reality is the Outdoor Industry Association has been doing economic counts for our industry for a number of years. But the challenge with that is being an internal trade association to the industry, a lot of the naysayers were saying, well, that's just you counting you. Of course, those numbers are going to be big. The difference now, to your point, is that this is commerce counting us. And so while nobody is surprised by the 2% reflective of our national GDP, I think the great emphasis point is that this is coming from the Department of Commerce. And so no longer can this be disputed that we're a significant portion of the national economy. So what does this mean? It seems that there is momentum. Does that also come power and things like that? What do you want to do now? What does this mean? Well, you know, I think for the longest time, uh, culturally, the outdoor industry has sort of been seen as this great blend of seasonal recreation, you know, fun people that you work at a ski resort part time or as a river guide or a fly fishing guide or you name it part time or, you know, if I have certain recreation um, materials in my garage, then, you know, that's how I interact with the industry. The reality now is with these numbers and with the awareness around the size of our economy, we have a responsibility nationally to create a different kind of political voice. And I think one of the things we're trying to work on is starting to create that construct and framework for how we do that effectively. And so we have the outdoor retailer show here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. It was a trade show. So only people that were, you know, with credentials could get in. But you did want to create this, I understand, this kind of south by southwest feel where you had discussions taking place and issues like, uh, uh, you know, public lands and things like that. Yes. Um, were you able to achieve that using kind of this momentum that you have? You know, Nathan, one of my biggest hopes for having the Outdoor Retailer Show here is to deepen the conversations around not only public lands, climate, and water, but also to understand how to, again, grow this collective voice. And one of the biggest, I guess, feedback points we've gotten over the years about the Outdoor Retailer Show is you have this amazing, gigantic entity where over 29,000 people come to town to talk about the industry at every level. And unless you have credentials, you can't get in. So you don't really understand, A, what we're fighting for, B, what we're talking about, and C, what our plans are for the future. So the way we've tried to shift that dialogue here in Colorado is by cracking that door a little bit to the general public. We partnered with Something Independent and launched uh, a session, plenary sessions called Trade School, where, you know, they were panel discussions on things like diversity in the outdoors, the intersection between the energy industry and the outdoor industry. But the difference with all of the plenary sessions at Trade School 
created was that the public was invited. We had a film festival called Night of Stoke at the Belco Theater. That film festival didn't just have really fun, high-energy short films that we were showing about the winter sports industry. We had iconic leaders in the outdoor industry that were really passionate and active about public lands and climate to come on stage between films and talk about what they were doing as civic-minded leaders. So you combine those two things, and then the biggest thing in my estimation was trying to get a multi-state delegation together from the eight states that have a version of me to create this thing we call the Confluence Summit. And within that summit, each state sent a seven to 10 person delegation to town to talk about what our common shared best practice deliverables can and should be. And so moving forward, we're creating something called the Colorado Accords out of those summits. And the Colorado Accords will be reflective of where all states agree on matters surrounding economic development, conservation and stewardship, education and workforce training, and public health and wellness, all within the outdoor industry. So the hope is we create a different kind of multi-state collective voice around the things that matter most to this economy that, as you said earlier, is reflective of a significant portion of our of our country's GDP. Well, let's talk about these Colorado Accords. This is this is something I've I've, I've not heard of before. Mm. Um, what is is it is it like a, a, a group of, of, of goalposts that you want to follow? <laughs> what what is this exactly? And why is this important? Well, you know, it's a really good question. And you know, the thing that I excites me the most about this is that you have some very serious people being sent from all of these states with versions of my office to really talk about what these goalposts are. So when it comes to economic development, a classic example of our industry is that traditionally, even despite the size of our economy, when it comes to new product development, a lot of these folks are entrepreneurs in their garage. It's the guy or gal coming up with the next great product. They are not being funded by banks. They are not being funded by traditional VC modalities. And so I think what we're discussing, at least when it comes to economic development, is we are going to try to reshape how the outdoor industry has access to capital. When it comes to conservation and stewardship, we are going to try to reshape the dialogue around access, both when it comes to public lands, water, and some of those other components, education and workforce training. We want to engage with academia to really help them understand that if we're a multi-billion dollar economy, what does our talent pipeline and our succession plan look like for the leadership of this industry? And the intersection between public health and wellness in the outdoor industry, for all the people within the coalition and looking at what to put into the accords, we really just want to acknowledge the fact that this doesn't need to be um, this byproduct, that there could actually be a deep connection between the healthcare industry and spending time outside, and that spending time outside could actually be prescribed. So we want to get into that conversation across the states that we represent. Now, this, why is there so much of a focus from the state of Colorado on this particular industry? Mm. Why, uh, why have your office here at all? <laughs> You know what? You're going to have to ask my boss, Governor Hickenlooper, that one. And well, all... he did make it a focus. It's yes. A, it's a big focus of his administration. And, and I would say credit goes to him for not only uh, you know believing in me and, and having faith in the industry um, to challenge some of these preconceived notions, to push the conversation um, to these new places that where we could come to a little bit more synergy. But I think the reason why is because Colorado has always been seen as a place where you can have a collective conversation. And as a convener, especially around the outdoor retailer show, where the entire industry comes to our town, I think it, we have a responsibility to guide, shape, and drive that conversation. So when you ask why Colorado, I think it's, it's um, you know, by the, the circumstances of luck of having the show. But then I also think within that luck, there needs to be focus and strategy. And that's what we're trying to achieve. I, I think what I'm trying to get at is that these are, these are major companies. This is the mm-hmm. North Face. This is Patagonia. This is, these are companies making money. That's their bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, 
focusing on them, is there too much focus being put on this in terms of the state of Colorado? Mm, that's a really good question. You know, and I think one of the things that we're trying to do with the Confluence summits is it was very important to me that not just to have every summit here in Colorado. So what you will see with the subsequent summits where all the states get together is they will move from state to state with an office like mine. So an example, the next summit will be in July in Asheville, North Carolina, because North, North Carolina just announced their version of me, David Knight, um, and the creation of their office. Um, you know, when you say why Colorado? Colorado, I think the other component that's important to consider is that when it comes to, you know, the industry and it comes to being holistic in these conversations, as other states create this office and create this intersection between the outdoor industry, um, you know, this isn't just about, um, us as our economy. And I'll give you a great example. Um, you mentioned the North Face, which mm -hmm. is a multi-billion dollar multinational company. Right. Obviously, they come to the Outdoor Retailer Show, but they're starting this great campaign called Walls Are Meant for Climbing. And their effort is to put outdoor climbing facilities, outdoor bouldering walls um, in communities that are a little bit more um, of need when it comes to outdoor recreation. The first community that they chose was here in Colorado in Mount Bello to put their first climbing facility in in partnership with Environmental Learning for Kids. Now, that didn't just happen because we have the Outdoor Retailer Show here. That happened in my estimation because we're willing to have these conversations about what it means to not just be an isolated and insulated industry, but to be out among the people. I want to turn to you want to get more people outdoors. You want to get more people into into this 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 part of our state. I, I want to talk about, you know, examples of possible destruction uh, where there may be too many people. I'm, I'm mm. thinking about Hanging Lake Trail in Glenwood Canyon, which used to be free and open to the public for many years, but mm -hmm. it's now uh, becoming overcrowded. The Forest Service is looking into capping visitors to that site and mm -hmm. charging a fee for reservations to go to this place. Is that the answer here, that there are more people coming, so they have to kind of create a pay-to-play system? Mm, you know, that's a really great question, Nathan. And I think it's a big part of what we try to discuss when we talk about conservation and stewardship. So the reality is you're never going to be able to hang a sign on your state's border saying close for business. People come here because they want what we have. And the reality in that matrix is that if they're coming here because of what we have, and that's the value proposition of being a Coloradan, it's our responsibility to educate them, not only as citizens of the state, but as visitors of the state as well. So what you're seeing from us are a couple of different things. Regarding education, the Department of Tourism here in Colorado has a uh, partnership with Leave No Trace to where we're actually going to start promoting Leave No Trace principles to every visitor and every citizen to really kind of define that if you're going to move here or visit here, this is what we expect of you from an environmental ethic perspective. And that's never really been done before. So that in and of itself is pretty groundbreaking. Now, you mentioned Hanging Lake and you mentioned fees and capping visitation. Obviously, because of the population influx, because of the fact that people want what we have, which I still think is a good thing, we have to get into this pay-to-play dialogue. The reality on the ground when you talk about the forest services is that they've lost over 50% of their budget to just fighting fires. Now, those are federal funds that are never, ever, in my estimation, ever going to come back. So you have to ask this larger question of if it is still our responsibility to take care of these things because we want to preserve them for generations out and that federal money isn't here, how are we going to take care of it? We'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. Luis Benitez directs Colorado's Outdoor Recreation Industry Office, which began in 2015. President Donald Trump's goal to make America great again started with reviving the economy. There's debate about how much he's responsible for today's hot economy. Despite the recent market chaos, there's no doubt the president and his party have driven growth. 
CPR business reporter Ben Marcus has more. Whether you like it or hate it, there's no denying that the tax overhaul that Trump signed into law is huge. Well, you bet. Uh, when you take the corporate tax rate from 39% down to 21%, it's going to have a tremendous impact. That's Sean Ostoff, president of Bank of Colorado. Lower federal taxes are a boon to the bank's bottom line. And Ostoff joins a growing list of executives passing some of the savings to employees. $1,000 for every full-timer. $1,000 for someone earning $15 an hour. You know, you're talking uh, 3% plus in a one-time, one-shot bonus. So that made the difference between a, a, uh, a good Christmas and a great Christmas time. And it certainly helped pay some bills. These stories of tax reform-related bonuses are headline-grabbing, but most businesses probably won't pass savings to workers. One analysis expects only 13% of the business tax cuts will go directly to workers. Most will go to share buybacks instead. But still, tax cuts are generally good for the bottom line, which explains why businesses are so confident right now. Actually, they've been confident throughout Trump's presidency. The confidence index jumped in Colorado dramatically as it did nationally right after the election. That's Rich Wabakin, an economics professor at CU Boulder. Businesses have reported near euphoric levels of confidence in anticipation of business-friendly policies. And Wabakin says confidence does lead to investment in workers and equipment and software. So yes, it's not just the confidence, it's the investment. And the reality is... The investment is an absolutely key part for long-run health of an economy. And he says investment was up substantially in 2017, even before tax reform passed. That may be in part because businesses are expecting Trump to cut bureaucratic red tape. In Denver last year, Trump's interior secretary assured drillers that, quote, the war on energy is over. And a few months later, he rolled back some public comment requirements for drilling on federal lands. Stephen Hall is a local spokesman for the Bureau of Land Management. And the administration has been very clear that increasing energy development is a priority, um, economic activity is a priority, and this policy will really help to drive the BLM towards that. Though Hall said that there's been no increase in activity yet because of the change. I don't think there's been a war on energy. I think this, though, is a war on the public. Nada Culver is an environmentalist with the Wilderness Society. She's disappointed that Trump would try to juice the economy at the expense of public input on drilling. Those are not radical ideas. Those are not red tape. Those are really important principles. The idea of red tape, though, is an easy one to attack. But rules and regulations on all business sectors are in place for a reason. And some prominent economists say that doing away with them could lead to future problems. One problem that could hit the agricultural industry especially hard is Trump's harshly anti-immigrant stance. Professor Wabakin says there's some evidence that the flow of much-needed laborers has slowed. He says one Colorado grower told him, Crops had uh, rotted on the vine. They weren't able to harvest. um, So they're missing that sort of piece of uh, the migrant labor pool, if you will. Colorado businesses have lately reported that their number one concern is a lack of labor. Trump has also contemplated withdrawing from NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, because he claims it's destroyed U.S. jobs. But even business groups say that that would be a disaster, leading to $2 billion in lost economic output, just in Colorado. The state's a major exporter of beef to Mexico and Canada. Trump officials have brushed off concerns, too, that they're overheating the economy. But still, inflation and interest rates are on the rise. 
Higher cost of doing business, yes. And um, already as they're going to finance over the last week, they're seeing um, higher interest rates in terms of the financing that's out there. And some say that that's what spooked the stock market in the last few weeks. So it's clear that Trump is focused on creating economic growth, and he's already having an impact. Whether that's good or bad, though, for the long term, is still up for debate. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And we'd like to hear from you. If you or your business has been impacted, email business at CPR.org. Thousands of immigrants detained at a federal detention facility in Aurora are moving forward with claims they were forced to work for little or no money. This month, the federal appeals court gave the green light to a class action lawsuit against the private company that runs the facility. Joining us now is Nina DeSalvo of Denver, based Towards Justice, which is one of the groups representing the plaintiffs. Nina, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. The lawsuit involves around 62,000 immigrants who've been detained at the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Facility in Aurora since 2004. These are people with pending immigration status. Maybe they came to the U.S. illegally or had legal status that expired or, or, or came to the U.S. even seeking asylum. What specifically do detainees say they were forced to do that's against the law? Detainees allege that they were forced to work under threat of solitary confinement while they were detained at GEO's Aurora Detention Facility. So were they, they working for free or, or, or things like that? They were working for free. Yeah, GEO has a, has a policy that requires all detainees to work cleaning large areas within the facility and basically maintaining the facility. In fact, for a facility that takes up Many city blocks and houses thousands of detainees each year. GEO only employs a single janitorial worker. All other maintenance and janitorial work is performed by the detainees themselves. And GEO is the private company that operates this facility, correct? Yes. Sorry. GEO is, is a private immigration immigration detention center provider. And And detainees, they're also the option to volunteer for a dollar a day to work as well. Yes, and and the detainees who worked for a dollar a day for GEO allege that GEO has violated Colorado's unjust enrichment law, that GEO is profiting on the backs of its captive workforce um, and basically pocketing taxpayer dollars that it ought to be spending on the workers who do the work to run its facility. And I understand one of the plaintiffs say they were put in solitary confinement because they refused to work. One of our plaintiffs did... Um, did spend time in solitary confinement. But right now, after the Tenth Circuit ruling on class certification, Towards Justice now represents approximately 60,000 people. So not just the nine named plaintiffs who initially came forward in this matter, but all people who were detained at GEO's Aurora facility since 2004. So in fact, there could be more, you, you, you think, possibly, that may have been in solitary? Certainly. Um, GEO's written policy says that folks who refuse to to do the work that they're required to do in the facility um, will be subject to discipline up to and including solitary confinement. Now, inmates in prison can be required to work for very little money. How is this different? Well, the folks who are detained at Aurora, in the Aurora Detention Facility are mostly immigrants or people who are suspected of having violated civil immigration laws. They're not being detained because they've committed a crime. Maybe they have violated a civil immigration law, but many people are actually just awaiting a determination of whether they've violated the civil immigration laws. Um, and a private company simply is not allowed to force people 
to work simply because um, they're awaiting some sort of determination of their immigration status. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. We're speaking with Nina DeSalvo of Denver, uh, of Denver-based Towards Justice. It's one of the groups representing immigrants housed at the federal detention facility in Aurora. They've filed a lawsuit claiming they were forced to work for little or no money. This month, a federal appeals court gave the green light to a class action lawsuit against the private company that runs the facility. Um, can you give me a specific example of one of the plaintiffs, play, uh, plaintiffs rather, who was forced to do work? Um, well, one example, one of our of our nine named plaintiffs, these are folks who, who were detained at the detention facility in Aurora, and they were willing to come forward to defend not only their rights, but to try to seek justice for everyone who's been detained at the Aurora Detention Center and to try to change some of the practices that are happening there so future folks won't suffer the same injustices. Um, I think of one of our, um, our named plaintiffs, Grisel Sawentitla. She's Originally from Mexico, she's the mother of three, and she was detained in 2014. She not only was forced to work cleaning the facility, but later participated in what GEO calls its voluntary work program, for which she received a dollar a day while detained. And Grisel has explained that while detained, she really felt disrespected repeatedly um, and suffered all sorts of other injustices while in detention, um, but she's excited to be able to bring shed light on on what she believes to be forced labor at the facility. The lawsuit is asking for millions of dollars in damages from Florida-based Geo Group, the company that operates this facility. We reached out to Geo following the recent appeals court ruling, allowing the suit to move forward. They sent this statement saying, quote, We intend to continue to vigorously defend our company against these claims. The terms of the voluntary work program at all federal immigration facilities are directed by the federal government and governed by federal law. All ICE facilities operated by GEO, including the Aurora ICE Processing Center, are highly rated and provide high-quality services in safe, secure, and humane residential environments. GEO calls this, like we've said, a voluntary work program and that they're abiding by federal rules. But you see this as a way for GEO to make, uh, I guess, bigger profits. Um, How significant is this labor pool to the company's ability to cut costs and make more money? Well, Geo's re- annual revenue in 2017 was $2.3 billion. The company is huge and is making substantial profits. The fact that the company is able to run, you know, a multi-block detention facility that may house up to 3,000 immigrants in a single year um, with by hiring only a single janitorial person really just demonstrates that the detainees themselves are conducting much of the work that is essential to maintaining this facility, and they are not making um, a reasonable wage for that work. GEO's contract, though, with the government says it will be federally reimbursed for detainees' work at this dollar-a-day level. Doesn't this policy come from the feds? No, it doesn't come from the Fed. So there are actually two policies that that our clients are concerned with at GEO's detention facility in Aurora. The first, GEO calls a housing unit sanitation policy. Under that policy, GEO pays detainees zero dollars, nothing, and requires them to work cleaning the facility for no pay. And if they don't want to, for whatever reason, they're subject to or threatened with solitary confinement. The forced labor laws prevent a private company from forcing people to work under threat of physical or psychological harm. Solitary confinement has been demonstrated to be terribly damaging to people. Um, And, you know, 
Geo is not allowed and, you know, McDonald's wouldn't be allowed to force people to work under threat of solitary confinement. There's no reason that Geo should be allowed to do that. But going back to that dollar a day question, um, so Geo, the second policy that our clients are concerned with at the, at the detention facility in Aurora, Geo calls its voluntary work policy. I see some irony in that just because very little is voluntary when you're in this coercive environment of being detained. But that Sort of being aside the beside the point, um, our clients worked for a dollar a day, um, doing all sorts of different jobs within this facility. They did the laundry. They functioned as barbers for other detainees. They served food or cooked food in the facility. All of that work, if Geo had to go out on the open market and hire Aurora residents, hire uh, Americans and Coloradans who are here ready and willing to work, Geo would have to pay those workers a market wage so rather is, is, than a dollar a day. Is that the question then? If, if these detainees were paid a market wage, would this be a different situation? Or, 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 or you know, what, what should they be paid in your eyes where this would not be a, a concern? Well – Whatever anybody was paid, if they're forced to work under threat of solitary confinement, our clients believe that that's illegal. Regardless the of the voluntary wage. work program is that claim regarding unjust enrichment is a little bit separate. Um, and GEO ought not to be able to profit off the backs of this of this captive workforce by paying them less than a reasonable wage. The Obama administration was critical of privately run facilities and wanted to phase out their use in certain circumstances. It cites reports that fund private facilities were less safe and not as well run as government ones. The Trump administration has taken the opposite stance and it may need more private contractors if more people assuming uh, more people are detained. Uh, if the plaintiffs in your case were to win, what effect could this have on private companies like GEO? Um. Well, our our clients certainly hope that practices like um, forcing detainees to work under threat of solitary confinement will be discontinued, that there won't be other people who are subjected to these types of injustices while detained. Um, to the extent GEO implements that policy in Aurora or in other detention facilities, GEO is a large private prison provider that contracts with the federal government to run um, multiple det immigrant detention centers around the country. Um, and our hope is certainly that this type of practice would not continue um, anywhere. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nina DeSalvo is executive director of Denver Based Towards Justice, which is one of the groups representing immigrants who've been held at the federal detention facility in Aurora. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Everyone knows the importance of the gold rush in Colorado's history, but what about the white gold rush? Sugar beets were the so-called white gold in the late 1800s. The sweet lure of this homely root vegetable started a stampede to Colorado's plains for a new source of riches, and it transformed the state's economy. Dan Garrison, a producer for Rocky Mountain PBS and Colorado Mesa University, has made a documentary about the white gold rush. He joins us from CPR studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Nathan. Can you describe the heyday of this rush to sugar? Were there sugar prospectors and sugar barons flooding into Colorado at the time? It's a, a very Colorado story. Um, uh, began here um, in on uh, the Western Slope with the first successful factory, briefly successful um, here. It had its ups and downs, but then 
spread pretty quickly to um, Longmont and Fort Collins and Swink and all across the Front Range and became a big agribusiness, really, became in some ways a monoculture and attracted a, a diverse population of workers, both in the fields and then in the factories in this very industrialized and very scientific um, industry. Tell me about Charles Betcher. He was a big sugar promoter at the time, right? He was everything. He was the jack of all trades of everything. Um, one of our historians on the program, former state historian Bill Convery, just laughs about Charles Betcher because his finger was in every pie, quite rightly, and his name on everything. He was one of the Leadville slash Denver capitalists who realized you could make money off mining um, without the risk by selling hardware by selling beans, by selling tools, and that was his beginning. But then he diversified himself and got into so many businesses and really was a, a force, one of the forces among those capitalists who began to see that, well, mining as an extractive process, you could run out, that load would run out, but there was a beauty in the sugar beet that you could replant it season after season. So sustainable, renewable, and the story is, the story goes, um, that he took a trip to Germany and decided he wanted to bring back high-grade, the best beet seed from Silesia, where they had really perfected it, and threw all his wife's clothes out of her steamer trunk and loaded it up with beet seed. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a George Washington chopping down the cherry tree <laughs> story. Maybe could use some forensic checks on that, but certainly he did bring back fine beet seed. I've heard 75,000 pounds, not in his wife's steamer trunk. Well, of course not. <laughs> um, but then also machinery, and then also laborers. Um, laborers, um, from Russia or from Germany who had moved to Russia and then subsequently had to emigrate to the United States and bring their knowledge of farming and particularly um, sugar beets. But he wasn't the only one. He wasn't kind of the, the grandfather of this, if you will. There was also Peter Magnus. He's credited with being the father of sugar beets. What was he up to more than 25 years before Betcher caught sugar fever? A man probably a little bit ahead of his time because he was working um, in the 70s, in the 1870s. And uh, there really was – they were – he was working doing scientific studies on sugar beets with a state agricultural college. And so it was a prototype. It was a startup. It maybe begin, began to get into the entrepreneurial phase. He began to do a lot of promotion through friends with the Rocky Mountain um, News, and he was quite – he was quite the advocate for that, but it just wasn't quite ready. It was at the time when we were still in the mining booms, and so there wasn't the desperation that you saw later. If you look at the cartoons of the time of people after the booms are over, you have these shocked looks on these you know, mining capitalist faces and trying to sell off their free silver mines and that sort of thing. So a yeah. little ahead of his time, but also started... What is a, a, uh, an ongoing theme of this story, which is the science that goes into the agriculture of it, but also the industry? It's very, very high tech. Well, and it's interesting because sugar beets resembled gold and silver in this very unusual way because the value of the beets, meaning the level of their sugar content, was measured in the same way as precious metals. Here's someone in your film describing that process. The agricultural scientists who are interested in cultivating sugar did their first quality testing of sugar beets at the Denver Mint, a place where prospectors brought their gold samples to assay their value. They used the same equipment to assay the value of sugar. 
And it's a good symbol of the transition between gold and silver wealth to this new sugary wealth. And that's important, the scientific nature of this, that it was it was measured just like mineral in Colorado. Yes, this is our um, former state historian, Bill Convery, who's been a fixture on Colorado experiences for many, many years and brings us stories like that that just come out of nowhere and really put it into focus that there really was. They were weighing the sugar beet in the balance and trying to grow the big beet and trying to grow the beet that had the highest contents of sucrose um, and found great soil over here in western Colorado because it would kill your fruit trees. um, But the the sort of alkali nature, the loam and clay um, really suited them and allowed them to be high, high content with um, the sugar. And it's funny to look again at the cartoons of the time and people were drawing cartoons of beets and making them look like genies growing out of the earth. They were that important. And then very often transforming them actually into money bags and really saying this is, it was a cash crop. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Dan Garrison. He produced a film about Colorado's white gold rush for Rocky Mountain PBS. This white gold rush is the sugar beet rush. Uh, Sugar was much more than this new cash crop for Colorado. In your documentary, you, you do a nice job of explaining how it really fostered a intertwining, if you will, of industry and, and agriculture. H- how so? I think stark contrasts to begin with uh, because on the agricultural side, it took a long time for them to mechanize it. And so you have this concept that was new to me of stoop labor, which is this image of people really out bent double and blocking the beets with long-handled and short-handled hose, thinning them, which really there were several sprouts from each beet, and you had to pick the big beet, the tallest one and the one that had the most leaves. So it really was almost a medieval process and took a long time to develop the machinery that could do as well as Immigrant, migrant, refugee laborers, and children, particularly who had the nimble fingers to, among other things, thin the beets. Um, And so mechanization didn't come in until maybe toward uh, the middle of the 20th century. Um, But up to that point, it was just really back-breaking work. But in the factories, the descriptions of the first factory here in Grand Junction is just like, it's it's a space project. It is so high-tech with all of its coreless engines, really powerful engines, and then vacuum pans and centrifuges. And the pictures of it, it's just a, a smoking inferno. It just looks like it is on fire all the time. So a lot of power, a lot of resources going into the refining of these beets and getting those few precious, that precious amount of really sweet, sweet energy. So what were the nationalities you were mentioning about stoop labor? Who, who was drawn to Colorado to pick these, these roots? if you will. First, the Germans from Russia who left Russia to find some, I believe, religious freedom and then in a Russification program then needed to leave Russia. And some were brought here because of their expertise with sugar beet agriculture. Some left um, in toward the end of the 19th century in a time when we had waves of immigrants. And so we speak to the Firestein family who are fourth and third generation farmers who began in the fields and were workers and then tenants and then owned um, a property on the National Register of Historic Places in Weld County um, for 100 years. It's been in the family that long as sugar beet farmers, Germans from Russia. And then um, we have a couple of gentlemen, Jim Bernal um, from Western Colorado and Angel Kalunga, who kind of represent 
both the settlers, Jim Bernal's family was in the San Luis Valley, he says, back to 1840. So they were part of the Mexican Empire when it stretched this far. Um, and then Angel Colunga, his family, um, were both pushed here by the Mexican Revolution um, after the turn of the century and pulled by growers. It's interesting to look at their passport photos when they came across the border from, they came from Zacatecas and crossed at El Paso. And their passport photos are stamped with the, the growers, the people who were brokers for bringing people over, and they made their way up then to western Colorado. So, so and many so different It's an immigrant story. Yes, yeah, yeah. so yes. many different nationalities. And, and then the, the, the Japanese and the children, of course, and a, a number of other people who um, are also fascinating stories. And, and just really briefly, is there a difference between beet sugar and, and, and cane sugar? Is, is there a significant difference there? Not to the taste. Um, the big difference probably is the protectionism that went into making this crop, this national crop, possible. The tariffs of 1897 that said, bring it up. We, we want our um, sugar to be homegrown rather than coming from Cuba, from some of the islands. So there was a lot of protectionism that lasted into the 70s. And when people said, okay, we want cheaper cane sugar that's imported, then they took the tariffs off. And that was one of the, the things that contributed to the demise of homegrown and Colorado uh, sugar beet industry. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. Dan Garrison produced a film about Colorado's white gold rush for Rocky Mountain PBS. You can see photos from his documentary on our website at CPR.org. The documentary is available on Rocky Mountain PBS's Colorado Experience website. And tomorrow, we'll talk about plans to bring the shuttered beet plants from the white gold rush into this new economy. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Nearly a million people in the United States live with an ostomy, a pouch worn outside their bodies to collect digestive waste. They have it because their intestines or bladder had to be removed, often because of disease. It's the kind of surgery that comes with a huge stigma, but Lois Fink of Fort Collins wants people to know it's not that bad. She's written a book called Courage Takes Guts, Lessons Learned from a Lost Colon. Lois, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Nathan. You were a teenager when you found out you had Crohn's disease, which attacks the gastrointestinal tract. What did Crohn's do to your body over time? Over time, I presented with symptoms of extreme abdominal pain, massive weight loss from rampant diarrhea. Because Crohn's disease became active when I was entering puberty, my secondary growth and development never got started. And I was constantly running to the bathroom, terrified of having accidents. Uh, on a normal day, I could go to the bathroom probably 15 times during the day, multiple times at night. So I was malnourished, and I was not getting the sleep I needed. The pain was so bad that I almost passed out when I would go to class uh, in high school. And I was finally correctly diagnosed when I was rushed to the hospital with what the doctor thought was um, appendicitis, rather, and prep for an emergency appendectomy. I woke up in the hospital in Pittsburgh the next morning, and a gastroenterologist walked in, introduced himself, and he said, 
you have Crohn's disease, and oh, by the way, you weigh 62 pounds. Oh, I mean, it, it doesn't always get so bad that doctors have to remove the colon, but yours was, was especially severe. When you were diagnosed, did you worry that someday you'd need to wear a pouch? Oh, of course. Uh, I asked all of my doctors, will I ever have to have a colostomy? That was the only word I knew. I really didn't know what the surgery entailed, but I knew that it was the surgery to be avoided at all costs. I struggled with Crohn's disease for a total of 19 years. And after 17 years, two bowel resections in between that time, my doctor said, Lois, we can't keep taking bits of your colon and resecting you. Your entire colon is diseased. Your rectum is diseased. And now we have to talk about ostomy surgery. And I looked at him and I was horrified because when I was first diagnosed, I asked all of my doctors, will I ever have to have a colostomy? And of course, nobody would tell a 17-year-old that perhaps later on, ostomy surgery might be in her future. So now when I'm hearing my doctor say, we have to talk about ostomy surgery, I felt betrayed by the medical profession. I ran out of his office, and it took me another two years before I realized I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I was living my life in a bathroom chained to a toilet, and I realized this was not life, and I needed to have a chance at a normal life. And I called my doctor, and I said, okay, I'm ready. I'll, I'll go through ostomy surgery. And you did have the surgery to remove your colon. How long after that surgery did it take before you started feeling better? Nathan, three days after my surgery, I felt better. I was still sore and in pain from the actual surgery, but my body felt the difference in three days. It no longer had a diseased colon weighing it down. So I started feeling better almost immediately. It was that fast. And did you realize then, you know what, I'm actually better off now. All of that worrying and waiting, I'm just, it was, it, was it worth it, I guess? That's, it sounds kind of weird to say, but. It was so worth it, Nathan. My life really revolved around where's a bathroom? Will I, will I find it in time? What will I do if it's occupied? What will I do if I have an accident? And how will I hide it from somebody? I was terrified to go anywhere if I had a conversation with you, most of my thoughts were centered around my gut. What will I have to do if in the middle of talking to you, I would have to run to the bathroom? So I could never really concentrate on what somebody was trying to share with me because I was so terrified of having an accident and running to the bathroom and then hiding it. So was the surgery worth it? Nathan, I wish I'd done it sooner. I, I was terrified because of all of the fears and misconceptions that surround ostomy surgery. And those are, I'll smell, I'll leak, I won't be able to leave my house, intimacy will no longer be possible, I'll have to wear shapeless baggy clothing. And I found out very quickly, none of those misconceptions and fears well, let, were let's, a reality. Well, let's talk about some of those, because I think those are the fears that many people have. I mean, there, there are several kinds of ostomy surgeries, whether for the colon, bowel, or, or bladder. So how does your pouch work mechanically? Okay, well, ostomy surgery can be also known as diversion therapy, uh, excuse me, diversion uh, surgery. Basically, the contents of the bowel are diverted, and instead of coming out the normal way, they are diverted into a pouch. 
I have a stoma that literally is a small portion of my bowel that is brought to the surface of my abdomen, and the pouch collects the fecal matter. And usually every time I I have to urinate, I empty the pouch. I sit down in the toilet normally. And about every five days, I take the pouch off and put on a new one. So it's really... It's really not that different. I just go to the bathroom maybe just slightly differently than you do. Uh, The pouching systems are odor-proof and very low-profile, and it's really not that big of a deal. And the trade-off is that I'm healthy. I'm not in pain. I'm not chained to a toilet. I have an active, full, rewarding life now. Ostomy surgery gave me back everything Crohn's disease took away. Gave me back my life. Now, now, what about talking about this? This wasn't uncomfortable to begin that process to be so open about something that's, that's for some people, maybe very private and personal. Yes. Uh, our bathroom habits are very private, and we really don't want to talk about what goes on in the bathroom. I learned which friends wanted more information, and I learned to share with them with what they were comfortable in hearing. And others, they just wanted to know I was healthy. You know, if if you go into the hospital and have surgery for whatever reason, you don't always start talking about it. Oh, gee, wanna wanna see my scars? This is what happened to me. Hmm. Um, I I I learn. I I take my cues from other people. If other people say to me, you know, I please tell me more about this, then I know pretty much how much information to share. And with other people, that's okay. They don't need to know all the details. But I felt that it was important to start talking about this because ostomy surgery saves lives, especially in the case of colorectal cancer. It's time we brought ostomy surgery out of the bathroom and into the living room. I remember uh, several years ago, a former model named Bethany Townsend, I believe, who who also had ostomy surgery because of Crohn's disease. She posted a picture of herself in a, in a bikini with her ostomy pouch. I mean, that must have been a powerful statement for you. It was. I thought, my gosh, finally, somebody has the courage and the guts to do that. I'm not sure I would do that myself. Uh, The way I have chosen to tackle the topic is to talk to you and your listeners here at CPR about this. And and you know, real briefly, because I think you mentioned before, what do you do about dating and intimacy for someone who, who may be concerned about that? You know, that's a really great question, Nathan, and I'm really glad that you asked that. Obviously, ostomy surgery is not something that you share with somebody right in the heat of passion. And I will give you a quick example. I had met someone, and after a while, it was we realized that our relationship was headed towards intimacy. And I shared with him that I had been sick, that I had Crohn's disease, that I had surgery. I explained the surgery to him a little bit. And I asked him if that bothered him, and he looked at me and he said, you know, that doesn't change who you are inside, and you won't get rid of me that easily. Intimacy is possible. I've also had another reaction, and I never heard from the person ever again, but I was secure in myself about my own body, and I was okay with it, and I realized those were his issues. Most of the time, the people that you love They just want you to be healthy. And there's all sorts of different kinds of underwear to hide the pouch, 
little small pouches. I call them intimate bags. It's really not that big of a deal. Lois, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Lois Fink of Fort Collins hopes to reduce the stigma and fear of ostomy surgery. Her book is Courage Takes Guts. Nearly 100,000 people in the U.S. have ostomy surgery every year. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.